you know, that, Tom, well done. Thank you for blessing us. We're going to be looking at the entire book of Galatians tonight. And uh, does everybody have an outline? We have some extras maybe around. Gabriel, you have some extras? Raise your hand if you need one. We're going to be looking at that entire book. It's only six chapters as opposed to the 28 chapters of Acts that we went through this morning. But we will be... um, we will be needing to really move through some of these dense arguments of Paul. I want to say up front that there's a lot of things that we, because of time, and we're just doing really the overview of Galatians tonight, we're really not going to be able to drill down deeply into. But hopefully what you have tonight is a, is a paradigm in which to think and to read and to study and to meditate and contemplate Galatians. And we want to begin with a word of prayer and ask God to bless us as, as we look at this entire book tonight. Father, we appreciate so much your patience with us. We appreciate, especially in light of the, the issues that Paul addresses in Galatians, that we have these same things in our own time and in our own life. The, the sometimes discomfort we have in our culture of receiving something without working for it, without paying for it, without without somehow earning it. We we pray, Father, to to continually fight the urge to to do much less, to, 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 to do even more damaging things to ourselves than just to rejoice in the fact that You have loved us and in Christ we are redeemed and we have been made Your sons and daughters in Christ and heirs of every blessing. And that, Father, is something that we can never achieve on our own. And so we pray that as we go through these texts, Father, even in in a a, a quick sense as we will tonight, that, that You will open our eyes and open our ears to these texts to really see them and to hear them and to catch the flow, catch the theology, to catch the the the, uh, the, the tenor of what it is that Paul is trying to express to those churches in the region of Galatia. Bless us in this way, Father. We pray it with all of our heart. Bless us in this way, Father, so that we can deepen our lives as disciples of Your Son, Jesus. And help us in this way, Father, through Your Spirit to, to fully embrace sonship. Thank You. Thank You from the from the deepest places in our soul for this grace. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tom Wright has an interesting introduction to to one of his books on Galatians. He says, Imagine that you're in South Africa in the 1970s during the height of apartheid. And you do something in South Africa during the height of apartheid that's very risky. You do something that's very dangerous. You build a community center in one of the townships in which everyone will be equally welcome no matter what their color or their ethnic background. You build it with your own two hands. You pay for it out of your own resources. You build it from the foundation up. And after the, 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 the project is completed, the construction is done, and people are beginning to fill that community center, you receive uh, an invitation to go up into Zimbabwe, the country just to the north of the Republic of South Africa. But while you're up there, you get a letter from one of your friends that a new construction company has started redoing your community center. 
And instead of there being one gymnasium, one gymnasium for everyone, there are now two. One for whites and the other for non-whites. Now some of the people you read in the letter that are back there at that community center are a little relieved because they thought trying to get the races together would stir up some trouble and it was just too much tension for a lot of people to handle. And they're a little bit relieved that now there are two gymnasiums. There are others, though, that ask the new construction company why the original idea of one gymnasium for everyone won't do. And the owners of that new construction company say that, that, that you, as the builder of that one gym, one community center, have some pretty funny, funny ideas about people and how people should get together. And on top of that, you didn't really have permission to build a one gymnasium community center in that country. Now that is, in essence, what is happening in the book of Galatians. There is a word that describes Paul, and it's this. He is a builder. Paul is, is a builder. And it, he, he writes in Romans chapter 15 and verse 20 that it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. What Paul has been called to do among the Gentiles is to go and to plant and to build churches among the Gentile populations. And this is what he is doing very early in his ministry in the area of Galatia, or the region of Galatia, which is uh, later on is Anatolia, and then later on becomes modern Turkey. Now, there are some concepts that we're going to use as kind of an outline as we go through this book. The two concepts that we need to see at the beginning of this letter by way of introduction are these two words, gospel and apostleship. Gospel and apostleship. At the beginning of this letter, Paul gives a nutshell rendition of the gospel he preached to them and the gospel they believed. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that is the essence of the good news, which is what gospel means. But it doesn't stop there with just the idea of salvation. That rescue from the evil age means that not only were people forgiven of their sins, but that every person who believed that good news, who believed that gospel, where the salvation and the redemption of their souls impacted their lives, they were being brought together in a community of like-minded, like-experienced people. There was not one gymnasium for the Hebrews in the kingdom of God and another gym for the non-Jews. But this is what's happening now in the region of Galatia, now that Paul is not there. Where Paul had been preaching and planting churches, where he was building, there is now a detour. There's now some deviation and some distortion of that gospel. And now that he's gone, he is hearing the bad news, that there are some teachers that have come and started adding to the gospel, thus making it a different gospel, or as he says in verse 7, not a real gospel at all. It's no gospel. And when it when it comes down to describing that gospel, that no gospel, that di different gospel, Paul does not mince any words about the gospel that he had presented to them in light of this gospel that they're now embracing. He says in verse 8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than one we preach to you, let them be under God's what? 
curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He's just repeating and repeating and making sure that they, they, they understand what he's saying. I preached you the original gospel. If anybody preaches you something else, let him be cursed. Now, here's what I'm trying to say to you in case you didn't get it the first time. I preached to you the true gospel. If somebody preaches anything different to you, they are under God's curse. The basic problem, it seems, was that there were these false teachers that Paul, and he'll get into more detail with that later, they were basically teaching the Gentiles that they had to go through Abraham in order to get to Christ. Specifically, they had to be circumcised and order their life according to Torah. It was uh, a grace plus something else kind of a formula. It wasn't that they were denying grace in its, in its, in its essence, They were just saying grace is not enough. It's grace plus all of these other things. And Paul will have nothing to do with it. Now it seems that that those who were preaching the different or the the no gospel had done this successfully by by discrediting discrediting Paul. You know how it is. I I mean, it happens all all over the place in the political world that you can't just have a discussion about the topics. You can't just have a debate about the facts or, or about the, uh, the, the situation or circumstance or the, uh, you know, the scenario that you're talking about, you would somehow have to undermine the credibility of the person and assassinate their character. And it seems that this is the way that they're able to get some traction with these churches up in Galatia. It is by downplaying his importance and his authority. That Paul, even though you know, he's a very brilliant kind of a young man, he's really not a, an apostle and because he's not one of the real genuine apostles, because he doesn't have that Jerusalem pedigree, he's not to be trusted. I mean, if he doesn't have the right pedigree, he doesn't have that Jerusalem stamp, then who knows where he got his teaching. Or maybe he just didn't tell them everything because he didn't think that he would get any converts unless he told the people what they wanted to hear. And so they, they say, you know, Paul told you a lot of good stuff, but because it's a church plan and because he doesn't want to lose anybody, he needs, you know, he needs for there to be some, some, some success. He tells you what you want to hear and not what you need to hear. And that is, if you want to get to Christ, you have to go through Moses. You have to be circumcised. Now, as a man, I don't want to hear that. As, 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 uh, uh, as, as an individual who is, is, is struggling with what does it mean to be accepted by God, to accept it through grace, and then to hear all of the grace plus something else type information is not encouraging. And they're saying, you know, the reason that he didn't tell you this is he didn't want you to be offended. And I think that that's in part why Paul says in the 10th verse of Galatians 1, you know, am I really trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I really trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul begins to defend his teaching, beginning in chapter 1, verse 11, goes down through about the middle of the second chapter. He says he didn't receive it. The gospel that he taught them was not something that that he received. It wasn't something that, that he was taught. He received it as a revelation from Jesus. And not only did he receive it as a revelation from Jesus, but he himself was set apart by God. And he says at this point... Even in my mother's womb, I was set apart by God to preach the true gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, you know, I didn't have to go to Jerusalem to get approved, although I did go for a short period of time in which I was with, you know, Peter for a couple of weeks. But years later, even after preaching this gospel and planting churches, I have gone up to Jerusalem and I met with the pillars of the church who saw 
what I was preaching and heard what I was preaching and saw that I was entrusted with the truth, the true truth, the genuine truth, the genuine authentic gospel. I had been entrusted by God with that. And these pillars saw that Peter had been entrusted to be the apostle to, to, to the Gentiles. As Peter had been entrusted to be the apostle to the Jews, Paul had been entrusted to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And at that time, they even gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And Paul even had the authority, once you get into chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul, to, to, even to underscore the fact that he, is, he has that authenticity and that, that calling from God, that, that approval, that authority from God, he even talks about this time when, when Peter, who is, who is the big fish in the big honcho in the church in Jerusalem, he even had the authority to rebuke Peter when he lapsed into a moment of hypocrisy. And it's here that Paul moves on from the idea of grace and gospel and apostleship he segues into the next section, which is about what it means to have identity in Christ. The gospel, in its essence, is not a, a, a couple of twists and turns in the Old Testament. Paul says it's, it's, it's a matter of, of rethinking who you are in the Messiah. It's, it's understanding this new identity that you have in Jesus. And he argues that if you leave that identity in Christ, that Christ is in you and you in Christ, he argues that if you bring back the law then you prove yourself a sinner. He says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Instead, he says, we are justified by faith in Christ. Our identity, our understanding of who we are in this world, who we are in the kingdom of God in this world of thorns and thistles, is not by doing the law. Our identity is in the Christ who lives in people's life. And that's why he says down there in verse 20, he says, you know, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. My identity is not all Paul. My identity is the crucified Christ. It's this Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He says we are now the people of Jesus with His life now at work in us. It's not just the Gentiles who have this new identity in Jesus. The Jews as well have this new identity, not defined by doing the law, not defined by memorizing Torah, but one defined by faith in the Messiah and trusting, not doing, but trusting what He has accomplished with His faith and, and His death on the cross. Well, after the identity, he, he begins to, to, to press the argument a little bit forward and says, you know, it's really about historical connections. Uh, I've, I've, I've talked about Charles Blondin before. He lived in the 19th century, died about 1897. He's a very famous tightrope walker and was most famous for stretching a rope across Niagara Falls and walking across it. And he was so confident. That the fellow was amazing. He was so confident that he could sit on that rope and... and, and with a chair and with a table and eat as he's crossing and, and do that right in the middle of it. And from time to time, he would even carry people, sometimes on his shoulders, sometimes on his back, sometimes in a wheelbarrow. He would take them to the other side on that tightrope. Now, suppose all those hundreds of feet up in the air, the, the roaring rapids of the waterfalls, the Niagara Falls, he has somebody on his shoulders and he's carrying them across. And right there in the middle, the guy says, Blondin, you need to stop. I think I don't really trust you anymore to get me to the other side. I think that you should let me off your shoulders. I'll go the rest of the way on my own. 
Now, what do you think Blondin would have said? He said, buddy, I don't think you ought to do it that way. And, and, and the reason is because you can't do it. You have to allow me to carry you across that divide. Now, this is in line, I think, with what Paul thought when he heard that the Galatians were thinking of going back to circumcision and falling back on works of law. He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, you foolish Galatians. You have this identity in Christ. Christ is living in you. You've been, your identity is the crucified Christ. Christ is in you. You live this life in the body by faith in the Son of God who's loving you and giving Himself on the cross. His life for you. He says, you foolish Galatians. If you think about going back, I mean, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was what? Clearly portrayed. Now what he's probably talking about there is you know, if you're, if you're talking to Jewish people, they have an understanding of what the crucifixion of Jesus and crucifixion was all about. Maybe not so in this particular region of Galatia, even though there were lots of, of crucifixions among the Gentiles. But that word portrayed means that, that, that Paul has gone into great detail to talk about the fact that Christ suffered for their sins. And not only did He suffer, but He was betrayed. And not only was He betrayed, but He was betrayed into the hands of His enemies. And not only into the hands of His enemies, but He was betrayed by the kiss of a friend into the hands of His enemies that betrayed Him to, to a place where He was flogged and beaten and, 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 and just nearly slaughtered by the Romans and then killed on the cross. He says, didn't you see when I portrayed Christ to you that way that, that, that it, was, it was for you that He went through all of that so that you would not have to. He says, who, who has bewitched you? He says in verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In the first nine verses of Galatians 3, Paul gives them two reasons why they shouldn't get off faith and get back on legalism. The first is you receive the Spirit. In the Old Testament, and this is one of the historical connections, in the Old Testament, the promises of God were, were many in places like Ezekiel, chapter 11, chapter 36, chapter 37, other places about God in the Old Testament, the promises of pouring His Spirit into the hearts of men and women. He says in, in verse 2, he said, I would like to learn just one thing from you. You who seem bewitched, you who seem so foolish, you in front of whose eyes... I portrayed Jesus as crucified so that you could be redeemed. I would just like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And then the second thing is Abraham's children. Now, maybe the troublemakers were using Abraham to create all the trouble about circumcision, but Paul, Paul says, yes, it is true. Yes, it is Abraham. But what is it specifically with Abraham? He says in verse 6, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. And you know this story in Genesis chapter 15. The only thing that Abraham could do because his body was dead. Paul will blow this out theologically. We'll expand it in Romans, uh, in, in Romans, chapter, in, uh, Romans chapter 3 and 4. Uh, primarily the end of chapter 4. But he says he believed. He looked at his own body. It's dead. There's no way he's going to reproduce. He looks at Sarah's body. No way it can reproduce. It can only be because God is faithful to His promise. And he believes. 
And so Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. You are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations, which includes the Gentiles, and he's really getting the attention of of the Hebrews in this audience. He says, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see how he reframes Abraham? Abraham is the man of faith. And he goes on to reference Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26, which recalls the very words of the people in the covenant that they made with God and repeated it again in Deuteronomy with Moses right before they entered the promised land. And he's going, if you, if you obey, if you go back to the law, you've got to obey every single syllable of it. You've got to obey every single syllable of it. Why would you go back to that? Why would you get off of Christ's shoulders on that type road when it is Christ who has redeemed you from the curse of the law? It's only Christ that will keep you from plummeting into the rapids. And in verse 13, Christ did that by dying the death that we should have died by being cursed Himself on the cross. We are cursed because of our sin. And even if we do the law, the law cannot be done perfectly. Everyone is a transgressor of the law. Everybody falls short of the glory of God, Paul will say to the Romans. And and, 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 in, in so doing, we have been unable to come out from under that curse. Why would you go back to the curse? Why would you leave the safety of Christ and His grace by going back to those works? The intent of the law was not to save people by works, but to underscore the need for faith. And in the faith of Abraham, to believe God. And it was to lead people to Christ. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The the New American Standard says to to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And Paul says, you know, think about it like a babysitter. You know, you need one while as a young kid, you're young, you can't, you know, you can't stay at the house by yourself or CPS shows up and takes your parents away. But there comes a point at some age of accountability, at some age of responsibility, at some, some degree of maturity, there comes a point where you do not need one. And once you don't need that babysitter, why would you go back to one? To go back to one would, would, would make you ill. So in verse 26, he says, In Christ you're all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And from historical connections with Spirit in Abraham, he goes into sonship. What does it mean by faith to be a son of God. What, is it, what does it mean to be a son of God? Well, at some point you're no longer under a guarding, but you have the full rights. Jesus was born as a man, Paul writes, in order to redeem us from out from under that law that was condemning us. That means that as we have come out from under the law and out of that condemnation, it means that God has made us His sons. There is no longer that sin. It is Christ that has paid for those, those, those sins. He has made us His sons and we are adopted. And the proof of that adoption as sons is that God has put His Spirit in our hearts where we can literally refer to God as Abba. 
We are His sons. We are a part of, of, of His family. And because we are a son, we are an heir. I mean, why in the world would the church in Galatia turn their back on that? Paul just cannot get his mind around it. He says in chapter 4, verse 9, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Then beginning in chapter 4, verse 21, Paul illustrates all of this with Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. You know the story going all the way back to, to the beginning of Genesis. Ishmael was born of the slave woman, a woman by the name of Hagar, which represents slavery to the law. It's, it's trying to do it yourself. It's trying to resolve the issues yourself. And it failed miserably with Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. Isaac, on the other hand, is the one in Genesis 15 that is the son of a promise that's announced by God. He is the son of Sarah. And when you read it in the original Hebrew, the emphasis is on this son is going to come from your wife, your wife Sarah. Sarah, your wife. It is your wife, the free woman, that this son is going to come from. And so Paul tries to illustrate that the son Isaac is the one that is created by the promise of God. It's not Ishmael. So why would you go back into that kind of slavery? You are free from the obligations of the law because they have been fulfilled in Christ. Why go back to something you cannot do on your own? You've been made free, which is the next and final section. It's freedom. You know, freedom... Crazy ideas about freedom. Freedom's just another way of saying nothing left to lose. Chris Christopherson. Freedom, a lot of, of the, the ideas surrounding freedom in our culture today is it's really about, about tolerating anything, being free to do whatever you want. Freedom, according to Paul, can be a dangerous thing among immature people. Paul has said that there's only one way across that great divide to God, and that is the bridge that is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so he says in verse 13 of chapter 5, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Why go back to slavery? You were called to be free. But don't allow the pendulum to swing so far the other way that you begin, as he continues, to use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, in your freedom... Because you've been adopted, because you have been redeemed, because you are in Christ, because Christ is in you, because you are a son of God, because you are an heir of all things, because God's Spirit is in you, serve one another humbly in love. When you think about the magnitude of all of the blessings that have been poured into your life by God through Christ, that you have received through faith in His righteousness and his and his fulfillment of the law and his death on the cross as 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 the penalty paid in full it humbles you it humbles you so that you can serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself if you bite and devour each other Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. The call to live as free sons and free daughters of, of, of God rather than the sons of the slave means 
worshiping and, and joy and peace and, and, and significance and purpose and confidence in this life. It means, it means, it means freedom. But to live as free sons and daughters means living responsibly in the kingdom. It means living as free sons, but recognizing who your father is. And Jews and Gentiles living together in the same community of faith, members of the same church, could only do so if they grew up in their faith, which means that they have grown up into maturity or Christ-likeness. Freedom does not mean to do whatever whims dictate. Freedom comes with the responsibility to live and to walk by the Spirit that God has poured into their hearts. And Paul says, you know what it's like? It's like, it's like fruit. It's like fruit. When you walk with the Spirit, it's like fruit blossoming in your life. And he says, you know what the fruit of the Spirit is? That when the, the, the Spirit of God, Yahweh God, has been poured into your heart, it blossoms into love, into joy, into peace, into forbearance, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become what? Conceited. Provoking and envying each other. It means in that love generated by the Spirit of God, the Jews bear the burdens of the Gentiles and the Gentiles bear the burdens of the Hebrews. In verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, you know, let, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let us not become weary in doing good. What happens if they throw themselves back under the law? And there, it becomes legalism. And legalism is about comparing your life and contrasting your life with other people. And what happens is you begin to bite and you de- begin to devour one another because somebody in your eyes, somebody in your view is not living according to the law, not living according to the standard that you yourself are living in your life. Or if they are living above you in terms of their standard of holiness according to law, then you, in comparison and contrasting your life to them, you begin to tear them down and to bite them. The same kind of thing. But if you realize in all humility that where you are as a son of God is not because of what you have done, but because God has loved you, and Christ took on the body of a human being and lived that righteous life and died and was buried and was resurrected in order that you might have that same kind of life, then it's about humility and it's about love. Therefore, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Why? Because God has done good unto you. And especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You know, when you boil it right down to, 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 to the, the little crystals, Paul is saying that the greatness of the cross should never be lost on anybody. The greatness of the cross means that all of the, the, the requirements and the obligations of the law, of what it mean, means as a human being to live in holiness with God, all of that has been fulfilled in Christ. It's not anything that we have ever been able to do. There is no one who has ever been able to to do the whole law perfectly for the entirety of their life the way that Christ did. And therefore, He is the only way to find our way back through the thorns and the thistles to God the Father. 
And, and in that freedom of knowing that, that, that it is because of our faith in His righteousness and the greatness of His life and the life that He lived that we could never live and dying the death that we should have died, that we find our way back into sonship, into the family of God, in, into His embrace. We are so completely humbled that it transforms the way that we even look at other people, in the, especially in the household of God, knowing that in this pew I sit next to somebody who had to be redeemed just like me. That at the foot of the cross, all the, 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 the playing field is leveled. We're all at the same place. Therefore, in recognition of all of the greatness of the precious nature of the gift of all of these wonderful things that have been poured into our heart that humble us, with God's Spirit generating it, we love one another. And we have patience and gentleness, recognizing the, the greatness of our standing with God that we can never achieve on our own. And the greatness of the standing of the person standing next to us in the fellowship line waiting to get the chicken or sitting in the pew next to us sharing a, a, a hymnal. It's, 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 it's about leaving that life that is impossible anyway, but not only was it impossible, but it was also a way in which we became very, very destructive with one another because of thorns and thistles. And recognizing that there is a, a, a life, there is a life in which the crucified Christ is in you. And that it is a life that you begin to be transformed into this other kind of an individual that you would never find in the law. The kind of individual that God calls son. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And we're going to praise God for the greatness of His grace. And if there are some ways that we might minister to you tonight, our, our spiritual leaders, our elders, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We would invite you to come down and share those, those needs with them as we stand and praise God together.